Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Okay. So, uh... We're very happy to have a Brandon Taylor here. <laughs> oh my God, she's blushing. Brandon Taylor is the senior editor of Electric Le uh, Literature's uh, Recommended Reading and a staff writer at LitHub. He holds graduate degrees from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and University of Iowa, where he was an Iowa Arts Fellow at the Iowa Writers Workshop in Fiction. We're very happy to have him here. He'll be joined with uh, he'll be joined with Miles Klee. Uh, he is Mel's resident tank top dirt bag, <laughs> shit poster, and meme expert. He edits the website. He edits the the website's book section and is also the author of the novel Ivyland and a story collection True False. So he'll be joining. Um, Brandon later, but please welcome Brandon Taylor. Oh, there's so many more of you than I thought there were. Um, <laughs> oh, hello back there. Hi. Oh, hey. This is like my Twitter life, but here. Um, as some of you know, I tweet too much, and I was on a bit of an adventure earlier in search of a hamburger. <laughs> um, I ran into a movie, four movies that were filming, one of which involved uh, Batman and Wonder Woman helping two young children. <laughs> um, and I was shouted at four times to get off the street uh, and told that it's okay if you walk by, but you can't stand there. Um, and so LA and I are off to a, a rough start, but it's better now. <laughs> Oh, hi. Oh, my God. There's so many friends. Hello. Um, yeah, I'm going to read from real life. Um, I'm not reading from the beginning. I'm reading from the opening of the second section of the novel. And you don't need to know much except that the protagonist is a young man named Wallace. And he is coming back to lab to really take stock of his experiment that he found ruined the night before. <clears throat> The other labs on the third floor of the biosciences building are empty, as if after the rapture. Strangely, it's also not dissimilar from catching a glimpse of someone undressing when they think they are alone, the twin thrill and shame of the voyeur. The air carries the salty scent of yeast media. Wallace's mouth waters. Below him, the atrium is filled with gauzy light. Dry yellow vines wrap around the railings, the floor glossy with wear. If he jumps, he thinks, he will plummet. A slow sweep through empty space, a horrible way to die. He feels momentarily the heat of the impact, the ghostly wet of his skull collapsing. The illusion of weightlessness gives way. The elevator slides shut with a rebounding clang. It's a little after 10 a.m. on a Saturday. 
At the end of the hall, light spills out of Simone's lab. Katie stands at the table centrifuge. It is an enormous gray machine emitting a high whine that rises in pitch until it bleeds into the mechanical noise of the lab. Rattling cages and clinking glass beakers strapped to agitators, mewling coils behind the incubators, the dull roar of the air conditioner overhead. Standing there is like being in the peristaltic system of some large animal amid the sounds of a body adjusting itself. Katie does not look at him. She's blonde with quite small features, as if someone had wiped away her original face and painted in its place a delicate miniature facsimile. She balances a green ice bucket on her hip, and she's slapping a pair of pale blue nitrile gloves across her thigh. Impatience. Boredom. Wallace walks quickly by her as if he might slip her notice, but she says, let's get this shit done. Let's get it done, he says gingerly. He's been caught, he knows, from up the lab, for it is really three rooms linked end to end, two benches per bay and five bays per room. A chorus of, let's get it done, comes back at them. The others sweep in and out of his line of sight as he makes his way to his bench. They are all here in this bright cluster in the middle of a cool, dim building. For a moment, it's vibrating core, a minor comfort. In the lab, there are only women. Katie, Brigitte, Faye, Suyen, and Dana. Katie is almost feral with the desperation to graduate. She emits a kind of raw, blistering energy. They all look away from her. She is their senior, just ahead of Brigitte and Faye. Brigitte is a natural, curious, and dynamic, but with a preternatural memory that feeds on whole bibliographies of developmental biologists. Faye is awkward and nocturnal, short and so pale that when she pipettes, you can almost see the shadow of blood sweeping up her forearms to her muscles. Her experiments are precisely designed, if inconclusive, with minuscule error bars, something Wallace admires to the point of envy. Once in lab meeting, Simone commented that Faye was trying to deduce some subtlety too fine to matter. Su Yin lives in the small lab among the chemical reagents and the tissue culture closet. There she plates thousands of tiny cultures, clumps of grayish cells that grow and divide or else die in pools of brilliant red media. Wallace once found her there like stumbling upon a spirit and a myth. She had been dabbing tears from her eyes with her bare forearm, dabbing and pipetting simultaneously in one unbroken motion. She had a heavy scent to her like salt water. The youngest is Dana, taken in the year after Wallace. Their advisor has not taken another student in some time. Every couple of months, the group hears whispers of rumor, retirement, migration to the Ivy League, leaving for an advisor position in government, consulting work. Rumors as insubstantial as they are numerous and temporary. For the most part, the lab is quiet. Clipped questions dart through its cool, bright air. Do you have any 6.8 buffer? Did you make new TBE? Where is the DAPI? Why are we out of scalpels? Who forgot to order DNTPs? Two floors up in Cole's lab, Wallace has heard they play frisbee together on weekends and sometimes visit each other outside the lab. Most of Cole's lab came to his house, came to his barbecue with Vincent, and when he asked Cole about it, Cole gave him a look of profound confusion. Of course I invited them, they're my lab. 
When Katie showed up with Caroline, then just a few weeks post-graduation, Wallace went to stand in a corner with them. He was drawn to them out of a kind of loyalty, although the room was full of people he knew better and liked more. Caroline and Katie talked, but only to each other, not to him. Caroline let out a sigh and said, here we are again, and Katie nursed her wine, looking through the glass onto the patio where the, where the grilling was happening, watching also a fifth year swim lazy strokes in the pool. They languished there for hours, no more than a handful of words passing among them, but instead of making an excuse and heading off to find a friend, Wallace stood there with them the entire night, even up to Caroline, having drunk perhaps too many beers, started scowling openly, even after Katie rudely told Vincent that the meat looked undercooked and she would not be having any. He stood next to them because he felt no impulse to leave. Today, the other desk in Wallace's bay is empty. This would not be the case, he thinks, if Henrik were still here. Henrik would be striding from his desk to his bench and back again, half starting a dozen tasks before finally settling on one. Henrik was a thick-necked former football player who attended a small college in central Minnesota where he studied chemistry and also was a tight end. It was Henrik who taught Wallace to dissect to do it in the dish rather than on the slide because it gives you more time and range of motion, how to wait for the worms to grow still, how to time everything just so, so that you could cut through a mass of nematodes, severing their heads in a single stroke, 50 at a time. <coughs> he taught Wallace the perfect angle at which to slide the slender needle into their germ lines, that mass of beautiful cells like roe. He taught Wallace many things, including how to put slides together for presentations and how to calm down right before, running your hands under cold and then warm water, get the temperature up, Wally, bring the heat. Sometimes Wallace saw Henrik's face when he closed his eyes or heard his voice warm and Muppet-like, silly sounding, a man who would always be a boy, perhaps. There was something vigorous and rough about him, like he might wrap his arm around your neck and dig his knuckles against your scalp at any moment. But there were moments, too, when Henrik drew to his full height and towered over you, moments when you were suddenly aware of his strength. Wallace had once watched him fling a five-gallon jar, five jar to the ground in a rage because someone had left the lid off. Another time, Wallace had been inoculating colonies, and Henrik shoved him aside and slammed the gas off and said, that's not right, that's not aseptic technique. He slapped the wooden spindle from Wallace's hand so that it clattered with a pathetic little noise on the bench top. During lab presentations, everyone in the room could feel Henrik's body in the dark, as if they were all keeping one eye on him, waiting, waiting. It was strange to hear him raise his voice because it didn't lose the Muppet quality. It sounded like an unhappy Kermit, shouting down conclusions he thought were facile or uninteresting. What is this, a goddamn campfire? The data do not support it. They don't. They do not support it. Wallace was always a little ashamed when Henrik made him jump. It made him think of the days when he was young and his brother used to clap his hands in front of Wallace's face suddenly and really hard, then call him a sissy for flinching. What you jumping for? You think I want to hit you? Wallace hated the way his body reacted to Henrik against his will again and again like hands clapping at the edge of his nose. But Henrik is gone now, at Vassar running his own lab, teaching undergraduates the same way he taught Wallace. Is it envy Wallace feels? There's a bit of dust on Henrik's old desk, a green highlighter. It's no shrine. Wallace swivels back to his own desk, piled with papers, protein alignments, plasmid library, strain sheets, some articles he's been meaning to read for months. 
His computer is asleep. An amber-tinted version of himself glints back at him. His coffee from yesterday is covered in a skin, the creamer gone rancid. He is dithering, he knows. He can't bring himself to look at his bench, though he knows he must. And so finally, he lifts his head and forces himself to look, to really look, to see. Wallace's is one of the larger benches in lab inherited four years ago from a departing postdoc who had left for Cold Spring Harbor to study stem cells in the gut of mice. The bench is wide, black, and smooth, made chalky from years of sliding hexagonal bases of Bunsen burners or the hard feet of microscopes across its surface. A set of blonde wood shelves is set farther back on the bench to divide it from the bench on the other side, Dana's bench. Bottles of fluids, colored and clear, sit in stubby white plastic racks like peering children. Tools, implements, stuck into every open space, jeer at him. And on the open space of the bench are towers of plates, the agar dishes, solemn and silent, like some miniature slum. His microscope is dark waiting, and Wallace feels its weight like an albatross or a warning. Katie watches him over her shoulder in an act of indifferent surveillance, and it is then that he remembers the other thing. Among Wallace's ruined experiments, immunostaining and immunohistochemistry data he had been tasked with generating, because it is the one experiment that Wallace can do better than anyone else in lab like a savant or a trained circus seal to hear Simone and Katie tell it. A perfect 700 dissections in under eight minutes, a precise accounting, all variables and conditions marked and measured, the microscopy penetrating and clear. Wallace's talent is not for looking exactly so much as it is for waiting. He can pass hours in the embryonic dark of the microscope room, waiting for the confocal to take its Z projections, slicing in micrometer width sections through the bulk of the germline, each cell a perfect kernel through three channels of fluorescence. That his gradients are clearer, sharper than even Katie's, does not reflect a superiority on his part, a greater mind, for example, so much as it demonstrates that Wallace has time to burn for the idle stupidity it takes to sit in front of a microscope and wait for hours. Sometimes an entire day passes without him leaving the dark, pausing only to change the slide, look for more germ lines, focus the beam of the laser as he waits for the shape to emerge. Simone asked him to perform this task for a publication meant to sit at the heart of Katie's thesis, and he agreed because they so seldom turned to him for things he felt equipped to handle. And he was preparing to do that, aging the nematodes just so, and it's now watching Katie watch him that he understands why she's so irritated with him. Those worms are gone now too, lost to the mold and the contamination. It's not the worst thing in the world, he can restart the experiment, but it is lost time, which is precious to Katie. She is closer to the end than he is. She expects more from her hours, can expect more. Bitter regret then. Katie turns from him, pops open the centrifuge. The brown sediment of pelleted cells, she slots in another. The machine cries softly again. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Thank you for that, Brandon. Oh, thanks for listening, Miles. Um, <laughs> and thank you to the Skylight family for having us. Uh, I love this store. love being here. Um, and thank you to all of you for coming out straight from the Democratic primary debate. <laughs> I know you all watched it. Um, so, Brandon, I think the first question uh, a lot of people have is, how dare you? 
<laughs> right. Such a good novel. Wow, that's so nice of you. And I'm not sure that's a question many people, <laughs> you know, but thank you. That's so nice. I dare to ask it. <laughs> um, well, no, what, I, guess, I guess a better way of asking that is, um, is there a moment when you felt like you had it, like uh, there was something working, you knew it was a full novel, you knew it was a book, um, and it was all just flowing together? Yeah, um, I have the, yeah, I, I know the exact day. It was the day Love I wrote that. the center part of the novel. Um, but before that, I think around 23, 25,000 words, I was like, oh yes, I have committed enough that, I <laughs> that I'm definitely gonna finish it. Um, but then I sort of wrote myself into this corner with the central section of the novel, and I was like, oh no, oh, who knows? Um, but once I got through that, it was, I was pretty sure that I was gonna be able to finish it. Whether or not anyone would be interested in it, <laughs> I had no idea, but I knew once I got through that middle part that I, that I had it. You were committed. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Time sunk fallacy is a great <laughs> writing tool. Um, I want to get into the, the title uh, because I, I feel like that's not something that has been touched on a lot in like, all the great coverage you've got, and congratulations because oh, everyone loves this book. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I was just, you know, it, real life comes up a few times, obviously, and um, I flipped to one that was like, uh, Wallace is talking to Cole, one of his friends in this group, and um, they've just they've had that big tennis game. Um, and Wallace is saying, I don't think I'll leave. I don't think I have any skills to live in the real world, but sometimes I'd like to live in it. In the world, I mean, I'd like to be out there with a real job, a real life. And so, yeah, it, occur it occurs to me that uh, academia is, is set against real life, or academia is somehow not the real world. And I, I was wondering how you think about the how the characters talk about that because it, it feels like it's their excuse to kind of deny the actual damage and pain they cause each other within this tiny world. Yeah, I mean, when I was a when I was a graduate student, like a real graduate program, uh, when I was in Madison, we used to talk about the real people, like the real people being like people who were not in graduate school and. Um, I think there's something about being in academia that, that feels like a simulacrum of real life. It's like you're just trying stuff out. Like you're maybe gonna experiment with like vegetarianism and you're maybe gonna like start recycling and, and get into flossing. Um, <laughs> I mean like at these potlucks that you go to in grad school, people are always like, yeah, I'm getting really into like bread making or like I'm really getting into like, like one guy I met at a potluck was like, I'm getting into stone masonry. Like it's a, it's a way to like, try on different aspects of like living your life. Like there are different, like graduate schools, like it's like a testing space. It's like the proving drawer for your, for your real adult self in the world. And, and part of that is just because graduate school in many ways feels like an extension of school. Like it feels like someone's gonna tell me what to do. I don't have absolute control over my own circumstances. There's like an advisor who, who decides when I'm done. And so I'm gonna like go to classes and do seminars and I'm gonna like volunteer at my local pet shelter or something like that. Uh, and none of this counts, like none of this is real. I don't yet have to go into like the full real world. And so um, I, that's certainly something that the characters in the book are doing. Like they're sort of working through this idea of who, like I have five years to figure out like where I'm really gonna live and like what I'm really, really gonna do. And everything else is just practice. 
That's kind of like when you find out at the end of middle school that your permanent record isn't real. <laughs> <laughs> or like, or like when when they're t- when you're learning the Pythagorean theorem, they're like, you're gonna need this. <laughs> and in high school, I mean, in science classes, especially like in high school, we had to write these really dumb lab reports. Well, actually, even in college, we had to write dumb lab reports. We'd go to like chemistry lab, which is like a different class you had to register for and pay for, and like buy all this extra stuff, and then not do the experiment, and then write it up in like this very particular way. And all the TAs were like, you know, when you you're in real, like, a science lab. You're going to have to do this. And imagine my surprise when I, go, when I go to, like, a real science program. And when I tell you that, like, I was lucky if I wrote anything down in a week, I'm, like, it's all just up here. You're just storing it up here, like, little nuggets of, like, yeah, I think I did that experiment. Uh, I don't know what the results were because I didn't write it down. Like, there, there's, there's a way in which, like, people in school, like, in educational settings are always telling you that you're going to need various things and then you just like don't when you get into like the quote-unquote real world like none of that was real (laughs) um well speaking of real things (laughs) it's appropriate um so at the center of this book you have this relationship with wallace and his his cohort member uh miller um and it's a very fraught relationship and you know miller is uh you know conventionally straight by by most definitions and and um, there's this specific anger that both characters have, Wallace and Miller, um, that's different um, based on their circumstances. And I'm just wondering how you thought about um, their different modes of anger and how they combine in this turbulent relationship. Yeah, I think that Wallace, Wallace is a person who isn't accustomed to being you know, he isn't accustomed to being able to express his anger. Like, I think that he, his main strategy of survival has been to sort of tamp down anything that even remotely resembles, like, a negative response to the overculture. Um, he's, like, blending in. He's, like, I'm just a duck. I'm a duck. I'm a duck. Don't look at me. I'm a duck. And, but he's, like, he's getting through by sublimating a lot of his anger and, like, by biting his ta- tongue constantly and saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, and so, like, his anger is, like, this anger of, like, sublimated rage because he's being constantly accosted <laughs> at every at every turn. Um, and Miller is someone, you know, he's, like, a tall white man. And so, like, he's someone whose anger, you know, has been given, like, a larger culture of a vocabulary in some sense. But he's someone who has seen what his anger can do and he's afraid of it. And he doesn't want, he wants to be a different kind of person. And so he's, like, putting his own, so he also is, like, sublimating his anger. But, like, he clearly is not doing a great job of it. Um, And so then when the two of them come to be in like this new strange intimate space, you have two people, one of whom is like accustomed to being like a receptacle for violence and anger, but is like trying to work through his own fury. And then someone whose anger like keeps leaking out. Um, and, And it was really, I mean, it was a lot of fun and also really scary to try to tease that out because you have suddenly these two people with a lot of anger who don't really know how to express it except in like really awful violent ways like they aren't people who know how to talk through their feelings for example um and so I was interested in the collision of like two people who are at a who are sort of at a point in their lives when their strategies have just failed them entirely. And I put them in a situation where they had to sort of come at each other. Um, and I was just wondering, like, what would happen? Well, those are really scary, intense scenes. I mean, th- in a way, this is like, you know, this is the campus novel. There's like only a certain range of things that are kind of possible <laughs> within that world. But then you put these two guys together in a room and you're like, 
I'm scared shitless. Like, I don't know what they're going to do to each other. I mean, I was, I mean, as a writer, I was afraid that I would have to write something that would make either of them be irredeemable. You know, like, I was like, how do I write Miller in such a way that, like, his anger feels, like, true. Like, it feels, like, real and concrete and, like, in the world of the book. But I also, like, have to be able to make the reader sort of understand why he's doing what he's doing and not feel like I'm giving him a pass, you know? And so I was like, how do I write this, like, very angry man doing bad stuff? (laughs) That's, like, what he would do, but in a way that sort of makes him seem human. Like, because I think sometimes when characters behave in ways that, you know, like, when a man behaves badly in a book, we kind of are sort of societal moral brain wants to be like, ah, yes, I know who you are, I know everything about you, I'm going to put you over here in the timeout corner. But to me, like, the most interesting fiction is fiction that sort of accommodates the full range of a character's experience and the full range of a character's behaviors and thoughts and feelings. And I just wanted to sort of capture, wanted to capture a lot of that, while at the same time, you know, the book is, it's Wallace's story, so I can't just be like, well, sorry, Wallace, I've got to, <laughs> I'm going to let Miller have his, <laughs> have his time to shine. <laughs> We gotta explain the white boy real quick. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> th- there was a draft of the book that did contain a let the white boy explain his pain interlude, oh. and my editor was like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, everyone knows. <laughs> well, I mean, along those lines, I wanna ask you about um, something I think you feel strongly about, which is about kind of consequence in fiction. Mm. Um, and I know there's something almost thermodynamic in this novel. Um, every action must have a corresponding effect. and it becomes literal and, you know, for like the tennis scene I mentioned where it's like it literally is the back and forth. Mm. Uh, I mean, do you think fiction is obligated to give us that responsiveness or just the clarity of outcome for a given thing? You know, I don't think that it's obligated to, but the fiction that I really love does, and and I think it should. You know, I personally, um, whenever I'm sitting down at the page, I am interested in what comes next. I think a lot of writers are really adept at sort of writing characters into a situation, and then there's like white space, and then we pick up two weeks later. And what I'm really interested in is in that moment when like a character does something that thrusts them into a space where language fails. Like I'm interested in that space where language breaks down and where you don't know what you say after someone has divulged a history of violence that has happened to them. What do you say after that? I'm interested in what comes in the difficult moment and like not flinching and not looking away and then also riding it out. And so I think that fiction, you know, D.H. Lawrence, Lawrence has this whole thing where he's like moral fiction is fiction that preserves the natural relationship between things. And fiction that sort of allows, allows for the relation between two events or two characters to sort of be as it is in the world and not to kind of cheat it by putting your finger on the scale. Um, and that to me feels right. Like I'm, I'm interested in consequences and I'm interested not only in consequences that we kind of get off the page three weeks later in a different chapter, but like literally what happens in the literal aftermath of like when there is a microaggression. You know, I think sometimes we don't know what to say in those moments, and a lot of people might look away from it, but for me, it's like a really generative space. So Wallace also has to make a big decision <laughs> in this book. Uh, he's a scientist. It seems connected to his desire to isolate himself. Mm. Um, is there something, you know, there, there are women in the lab, as you mentioned that scene, it's all, all the other people are women. Um, but is there something inherently male in trying to 
wall off the emotion within the kind of exactitude of scientific research that he's doing. Inherently male. I mean, that is like an interesting. Sorry, I work for like a men's magazine. <laughs> no, I know. So I, get, <laughs> no, I mean, I th I find that like really, really interesting because you know, like for my entire life, I've been shunted out of like male spaces because like I had. I mean, I was the youngest of like ten very rough boy cousins, and they were like, "This reading thing, you cannot hang out with us." Um, and so like I, I always I feel quite shy thinking about myself or like my work in kind of like a male context but like I am a man um and so I mean it there is something there is something to that I think like we have all these like narratives from the culture right of like the the mad scientist like the mad scientist like in his lab deeply obsessed with like a thing and and there's like a rhyme for that in the idea of like the obsessive male creative, like walled off in his lab and like maybe his partner brings him tea every couple of hours, but he's gotta like be really, um, and so I don't know if there's something inherently male in it, but I do think that our culture is rich with imagery along those lines. Um, and as we know, you know, it's, you know, men struggle often with like how to put language to their emotions because we exist in a culture that at times seeks to deprive not just like men but anyone of like a rich sort of eternal emotional life um and and so like that's not something that I would have put language to myself but I think that, that there's certainly a rhyme with Wallace and and that imagery for sure which I don't know like you've illuminated something about my <laughs> own my own character to me <laughs> yeah well I just I just mean that I think that his decision at the end of the day is you know either to quit his field or continue it's sort of a choice between loneliness and a vulnerability right is it, do I want to seal myself up in the lab and never actually interact with or minimize my contact with mm. other human beings or open myself up to the problem of being accessible to them. Yeah, I mean I think also the way that I think the way that I thought about that question or that conflict is the idea of like if he stays in lab, he has a steady paycheck and like he's not someone with means or resources. And so for him that question of like whether to stay or whether to go is like a deeply emotional one, obviously, because it's like taking a really intense psychic toll on him. Like it's not easy. Um but it's also tied up in like materiality. Like he just literally if he leaves, he literally doesn't know what he will do and like how will he feed himself or like how will he pay his rent and things like that. And so I think it's a question that has a question of like the emotional cost of this labor, but also, you know, the 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 material the urgent material matter of his life, like how will he support himself? And so he's going back and forth. And it's and it's really not either or, like it's literally all of these things, you know, in the way that capitalism is everything and nothing in our lives. I think that um, the reason you end up with people like Wallace who end up in these horrible situations is because they do it to sort of get rid of precarity and, and they seek solace in the bosom of like academia because it seems stable but that stability comes at like a really insidious cost i want to do kind of a goofy thing now because this has been a little serious not too serious <laughs> but but you know the book also has very funny stuff and you're a very funny guy well i try um so you write these wonderfully realized and consistent characters i mean they're so recognizable from one point to the next and you also have a Twitter account that takes a strong, definite point of view. <laughs> and I wonder if we could just look back at a couple of, of opinions you've tweeted in the past. <coughs> just, just to see if you still agree with them. Okay, I'm into this. Let's okay. do it. 
Let's do All this. All right, so a year ago. Oh, wow. No tweets. You literally deleted everything. Very smart. Yeah. You were way ahead of me. The book was coming out. It, there was a cover reveal coming. And I think I tweeted something really chaotic. And I was like, no, I've got to, like, <laughs> clear this out. Yeah. So I, I had to go a little more recently. Uh, so last month. Oh, no. You were going off against a certain font. Oh. I don't know if we have any font enthusiasts in, or type, typists in the house. Uh-oh. I don't know where um, this is going. Uh, so what you said was, I have a problematic take. <laughs> Always a great way to begin a tweet. Uh, Garamond is not an acceptable font for submissions. It's too hard to read. Yes, it is beautiful, but it is hard on the eyes, especially if the person has other things to read, and especially if it is on screen. Do you still agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. 1,000. You know, I, I was doing a thing that involved reading a ton of pages and I got eye strain because so many of them were in Garamond like I like I had literal yeah. eye strain and I thought like what is going on with my eyes go to the eye doctor he's like your eyes are strained I think I think it's the font of someone who wants to feel like the book is already published yeah I mean and like if that's for you that is so fine but like a submission involves other people don't like don't be selfish and you know what I, I'm guilty of it so I won't, I won't. Uh, so last week you were defending Faulkner. Oh, yeah. William Faulkner. Oh, yeah. Billy Faulkner. From a guy who said all his books are bad. Mm. And you said, just because you can't read doesn't mean that you need to make that our problem. <laughs> like, there are a lot of compelling reasons to take issue with Faulkner, but Wu Chile, don't be a child on Beyonce's internet about it. Still, still yeah, stand by absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think like there. Are listen, there are so many reasons to take issue with William Faulkner. Like there's so many. Like it's not a short list. But being like, oh, all his books are bad. When like as I lay dying is like right there, fam. Like it's not an acceptable. I think I, I looked at that guy's tweets and he called uh, as I lay dying like a, a weekend at Bernie's, <laughs> without good characters or something like I that. I saw that and I almost my head almost exploded. <laughs> I was just like, first of all, so how dare very, So this is very restrained of you. Oh, yeah. I, to say that he can't read. <laughs> facts are facts. <laughs> um, I'll just end with uh, a tweet from earlier today. Let's see if you still stand by this. Uh, you've just gotten into town, I believe. Um, you said, people in Los Angeles walk like they learned how to move from YouTube videos. <laughs> Still true? Yeah, I mean, I, I was in the back of an Uber being driven to the hotel, and I look out the window, and there's, like, this man with, like, the most aggressive, like, Alexander Technique posture, just, like, walking down the street. And I was like, this person walks like they learned how to walk, <laughs> like they learned from YouTube. Like, what is this? That's how some of us learn. He wasn't even the only one. I, yeah, so I think, yes, I stand by it. I, yeah. You are, you are as consistent as your characters. I admire that. Yes. I love consistent characters. Um, I think we will open it up if anyone wants to shout out. Don't Any shout out. Raise your hand. Whatever. We behave. He's really nice. It's okay. <gasps> yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah, so the question's about flashbacks. Um, I do not like them. I I was, in fact, tweeting while I was writing this book. As a matter of fact, I can remember, like, several tweets where I was like, I guess I put a flashback here. I don't know what else to do. Like, put a flashback down. Um, you know, I think that flashbacks in fiction are sometimes a way for writers to sort of skip around staying in the moment and sitting in, like, difficulty. Um, and I also know myself that if I let myself write a flashback, it will only be flashbacks. So for this book, I wrote the entire book with no backstory. Like, the whole first, the whole first five sections, first four sections of the book, I was like, I'm not going to write any flashbacks, no backstory, and I'll just put it all in one section, and I'll just, like, condense it. So I'm not going to tell you anything about Wallace's, like, deep, deep past. Um, because I just like knew that that would overpower the book. And I think that when it comes to flashback, it's just a matter of proportion. And it's a, like you can have a flashback, but it's got to feel like it's in proportion to the moment. Like the flashback can't be bigger than what you're trying to do in the present moment. And flashbacks are often places where people hide important things. Like you can put a car crash in a flashback because you know the person survived it because they're flashing back. <laughs> And so when I was like writing this, but when I was putting the flashbacks in, I was trying, since I, since I did it after the fact, I could pick my spots and I could really think about what needs to happen here to create an emotional resonance. Because the fact is like flashbacks are a useful technology to create resonance and meaning and metaphor. And they're beautiful and they're often full of great lyrical language, but often nothing important happens in them because <laughs> like you know they survive. Like it's like having a cliffhanger when you know the show's renewed for a second season. Like, <laughs> like no one's gonna die. Um, yeah, I learned things. Yeah, so part of that is like I refuse to write first person fiction. Uh, like, as a rule, I just can't and don't. Um, the first part of the book is in past tense. And the reason that the second part is in present tense is because the first line I wrote for that section was, in the lab there are only women, which is a present tense sentence. And my problem is that like, I maybe should always be writing in present tense because it like weaves some kind of a spell on me where like if I have even the most casual glancing encounter with like a present tense thing, I'm just like locked in for months. <laughs> like I can't get out of it. And so I wrote the entire second section in present tense. Didn't realize it was in present tense until I got to the end of it. And then I was like, well, I've got two sections of this book here, one in past tense, one in present tense. And I can either waste time by like trying to rewrite one or I can just like let the book sort this question out. And so I just continued in present tense until I got to a place where it just made sense for the book to come back to itself. Which is to say that I found a way to justify it to myself technically. <laughs> um, but, but it was important that, and I knew that the middle section would contain this hyper lyric register. And like that section starts out in third person and then there's a switch. And I just like didn't realize the switch had happened until I wrote the section. But I, so I wrote this book in five weeks, but two of those weeks were just like being unable to write the fifth section. And by the time I wrote it, I was like, well, I'm not rewriting. <laughs> I'm not going to like take the first person out. I'll just like leave it and like see if anyone complains about it. Um, <laughs> and nobody has. And so I'm like, it must make sense for the book. So really it's like my own desire to avoid labor <laughs> that like, <laughs> that caused the book to be made up of all these like weird 
decisions, but I, I'm ultimately glad for it because I think it takes the book to a place that if I had my own way, like I, like if I'd done it from like first principles from my own impulses, I would never have, have gotten the book that I got. I would have had this other thing that was like much more predictable, I think. But instead I have this book that contains all these different registers of this character's life and his thoughts and his feelings and it just feels richer for it. So, you know, sometimes just like trust your own weird lizard brain. <laughs> Any other, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we don't we don't have all night. Here. Listen. So I mean it's it's sort of like with flashbacks. I feel like first person fiction often is an ex first person fiction is often an, an exercise in like extended voice and a voice that make that continues to make an occasion for itself. Like oftentimes first person fiction sublimates the needs of story just for like an excuse for this really slick mechanism to keep going on and on and on. And the other part of it is that it is an incredibly isolating point of view. And so you often get these stories in which you're just kind of locked in a character's head and like the novel of consciousness is like a thing, but like not every first person book can be a novel of consciousness. You know, like not everyone can be like Zabold. Um, and so you get these books where characters are like encased in a like amber of their own like deep observations about things, but they don't involve the world. And so first person fiction sometimes really sucks at bringing other characters in. And what you get is like a story that lacks tension or like lacks drama or like a moment, like a story in which a character is not troubled by the world. They just kind of get to slide on through because their voice is the thing that's organizing and controlling everything. And so for me, like someone who's like deeply interested in the world pushing on a character and pushing back and challenging them, first person fiction, just like first person as a point of view, like it just, it has too many escape hatches <laughs> for me. Like I can't close all of them down. <laughs> Questions? I promise I don't hate first person that much. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've really enjoyed your piece about teaching workshops. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about your, your pedagogical philosophy and why you kind of draw the workshops the way you do? Yeah, so like I left my doctoral program in biochemistry to go to the Iowa Writers Workshop, and it was like the worst educational experience I've had in my entire life. Like it was really bad. Um, and, and I think that if I had gone there as a younger writer, I would not be writing today. Like this book would not be published. It was destructive and really bad. And part of that is just like the workshop model as I experienced, it was just a space for a bunch of people to get their hands all over your work and the teachers didn't really intervene and it was just like, a like so bad. Um, and so when I teach, I'm really interested in like preserving my students' interest in writing. And so the way that I do it is we spend the entire class working in a descriptive mode where I'm trying to get the students to articulate both what the tech, what they think the text is and also their reactions to it. And so it is not evaluative. We're not here to sort of like teach you how to do plot or character. Instead, we're gonna be the closest readers for this story and we're gonna like really try to examine what it's doing and how it's doing it and to sort of honor our encounter with the text, but to try to describe that so that the, the writer can then sort of figure out, oh, that is an, an effect I'm interested in leaning into or like, oh, that's not what I wanted. Um, it's really a space where I'm just like trying to get the students to think very deeply and descriptively about the work because I think in a lot of like graduate workshops, the teachers kind of assume that everyone has has read it closely and that we all understand what it is. And I just think that's not true. Like they kind of skip that descriptive phase and skip right to evaluation. And so you have 12 disparate people 
tearing a work apart often, and they haven't really read it deeply or carefully. So I'm trying to really urge people to be close, careful readers in my workshops. I, you know, if you'd asked me this question before the fall, I'd be like, oh, teaching. I just want to write books. Um, but I, I f you know, I found my students so engaging and so interesting and so careful with each other's work and such interested, like, astute readers. And they're so compelling to me. Um, and I'm re I really like it. Yeah, I would teach again. It's fun. I like it. Hire me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What am I reading? Right now I'm reading, rereading To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Um, I don't, I mean, this book is like full of allusions to, to the lighthouse. I love that book so much. Um, and one of my friends is reading it for the first time and he was like, oh, I got to this part. And I was like, I like that part. And he goes, in this part. I'm like, I love that part too. <laughs> so like, I've just like invited myself into his, into his reading experience, which is the thing I often do. Like I have this friend, Pam Zhang, who like, she'll be, she'll text me a pick up a book and I'll will literally go to Prairie Lights that day and get it. And I'm like, book club time. <laughs> so I'm always like inviting myself into my friend's reading lives. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. I don't like omniscience, but v Virginia Woolf is like a genius. I mean, what she does in like the opening paragraphs of Mrs. Dalloway, for example, right? And even into the, right, into the lighthouse. I mean, in some ways, like to the lighthouse takes that even further because it's not just like a little bit of head topping. It's like deep into Tansley, deep into Mrs. Deep into the, um, into the I forget her name, but the, Mrs. Ramsey, yeah, Mrs. Ramsey. Like you get deep in there um, and it's, it's such an interesting, rich, tool. And I mean, omniscience is interesting. I, I recently read Tessa Hadley's new novel, Late in the Day, and I kept talking to a friend of mine about it. Like, there's something weird about this book. Like, we know so much about these characters. Like, I can't put my finger on, like, what's so weird about it? And my friend was like, Brandon, it's omniscient. Because <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's, it feels old-fashioned now. And, and I was just like, oh, right, that's what it's called when you, when you deeply inhabit multiple POVs in the same passage. Um, so, I mean, I find omniscience, like, really interesting. I mean, as you can probably tell, I'm a bit of a POV geek, and I, I love thinking about these things. And, and even though I don't write in first person, I love thinking about what it can and can't do. Oh, are we done? The, there's no, 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 no. Yes. Um, I mean, no. I think I didn't. I mean, my expectations for this book were really modest because I spent two years at Iowa being told I was a bad writer. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I didn't expect much for this book. I thought it's going to go out in the world and I hope it finds its readers. But, you know, if not, I did my best. Um, and people seem to have really taken to it. And, and so it hasn't really changed my own conception of myself as a writer, but it just all feels like a, what luck, like what great luck to be like this weird person <laughs> with a book that, that people think positive things about. Like it, it feels all bonus, all, all bonus all the time. Any other questions? Yes. So noted short story writer here, <laughs> written many essays and tweets about it. Um, I'm working on two novels right now. Um, one about an art museum, and one about a concierge doctor. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Oh, ooh, this is good. I'm gonna you, got, you got the murmur. That was good. This is this is great. Ooh, ooh la la. I can't wait to tell my editor. I mean, like, you won't believe this. The, <laughs> the ripple that went through. The there crowd. was a frisson of pleasure. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. No, so when I was in Madison, I studied biochemistry, and the ye semester I arrived, she left for Vanderbilt, but I am bummed about it, because I love Lori Moore. She's like a genius. A short story writer. And a short story writer. She wrote one novel, two novels, one about 9-11, which was interesting, but so good. Love, it's, a, it's a choice. Love Lori Moore. She's, <laughs> but no, I didn't get to study with her, or, or any of those creative writing people in Madison, because they were not very warm to me. Same. I felt the same way. Yeah. <laughs> Why weren't you guys in math? <laughs> that would have been <laughs> the family I never had. And so you, I was just going to like your trajectory as a scientist, mm. because I'm sure that would have been an amazing life also. Um, what interested you about science? Did you want to do these? I mean, I was always a nerd child. I mean, I remember being four or five years old, like mixing things in my grandmother's bathroom, like creating a more efficient cleaner for her grout or whatever. Um, and I was always like mixing things, trying to be Dr. Quinn medicine woman, like out on the, the fires in our backyard. And, and so I was always into science. It was always a part of my life. Uh, and I was also always like writing these like really silly stories, mostly for my own amusement. Um, but the thing is like, I think the way that literature is taught in public schools in this country, like I thought, all authors were dead and that books were a thing from the past time. <laughs> like I didn't know that they were still living, like contemporary fiction was not a thing. Um, and it wasn't until I got to undergrad where I took creative writing classes and they were like, yes, there are still writers in the world. I would like to be one. Um, but I was really deeply, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon from the ages of like five to 20, like that was my path. And then I decided, oh, I don't like pre-med people. I'm gonna switch to biochemistry. And so I went to an elite PhD program in biochemistry and that was my life. Like I thought that's what I would do because um, you need a job <laughs> in the world. Um, and then when I was there, I, I took a creative writing class with Justin Torres here in LA at Lambda Literary. And he was the first person to be like, you can be a writer, <laughs> like you can do this. Um, and I was like, no, nah, I'm a scientist. This isn't really my thing. All these people have MFAs. I don't even know what that is. I'm, I'm over here doing my own little thing for my, my own little self. But he was like, no, no, you can be a writer. And, and he really encouraged me. And so I sent my first story out and got it accepted. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'm gonna do both of these. Um, but then it reached this point where I was doing both at like a really high level and it was like no longer sustainable. Like I couldn't keep doing both. And, and my thesis advisor told me that I had to choose. And she said that if also I had like applied to Iowa and had gotten in and I was like, what do I do? <laughs> it feels like a sign. And she told me that if I were to stay in the lab, she would expect me to put writing aside for the couple of years it would take to finish my my dissertation. And I was just like, I don't know if I can go back to not being <laughs> like a writer. I don't know if I can survive that. And so it was this really, really tough choice where I was like, which like which loss is more, like which one can I survive? And losing science was like really quite difficult because like that was tied up in my self-conception of myself. And it's also just like how I see the world <laughs> like as a, and it is the thing that I am most trained in. Um, and so it was really, it was really, really hard. But then I, you know, when I left it, I got an agent, sold my book like f six months later, and 
placed a bunch of stories in great places and it's just been a great trajectory ever since. And so when I talk to my old science friends, they're like, you made the right choice. It seems like, <laughs> you know, like it seems, it seems great for you. It's working out fine. You're at a great bookstore reading in LA. Um, so it, yeah, I mean, it, it does feel like the right choice, but I, it was really, it was a tough decision. It was hard, but you know, it worked out. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I was, I mean, I was like a writer. I mean, not to say that like you need a license to be like I was a writer, but I didn't see myself as a writer, and I didn't take it seriously, and I didn't know how it was done. But I, I applied on a whim, like at the last possible moment, to this writing retreat, and they gave me a fellowship because otherwise I couldn't afford it, and they brought me out and studied with Justin Torres, and that was just like such a rich, wonderful workshop, and it was so great. And he, he literally sat me down, and he was like. You can be a writer. Do you want to go to Iowa? I can get you in. I, I'll, I'll write you a letter of rec. <laughs> you know, let's go right now. And Dude, I was like, can you give us his email? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm a scientist. What are you talking about? Um, but no, like he, him saying that changed my life. Like it was just a moment where I was like, oh, this is possible. Yeah, that question ran in my mind every day for two <laughs> years. Um, you know, it was really hard. It was I thought about leaving every single day, and it was just I was like, I cannot believe that I, because like, listen, I was like type A. I got straight A's like through all of my education. Like the idea of like leaving a a school program to do it, like, I was like, that was never in the cards for me. And so I was like, I cannot believe I left a school thing to do this other school thing that is actually not even a school thing. Like MFAs are like like basically summer camp for writers. And and I was like, I cannot believe this. My life, what a terrible decision I have made. And it was, I mean, it was brutal, but I had a really great uh, mentor that first year, Amber Dermont, and she would, you know, she, she had a six-hour meeting with me about my writing, but mostly it was just therapy about feeling sad about being at Iowa, you know, and she was always available to me, and she was so encouraging, and she was just like a human. She treated me like a person, which cannot be said for most of my <laughs> instructors there. Um, and I made a couple really, really good friends who are also miserable, and we just got through it together. Um, and without, you know, without Amber Dermot, I would have left that program and without a couple of really, really good friends, I wouldn't have made it. Because Amber was there for like a semester, and then she was gone. And I'm like, I need people. I need a support system. I just think like I went in with a certain set of expectations, and they were the wrong expectations. <laughs> and so when it came to second year, I just changed my my outlook. And I was like, you know what? This is, a, this is time to write. I'm just going to use it like that. And I wrote three, four books while I was there. So I was like, I'm just going to use it to work. And it's not a place that's going to like give me the mentor who will change my life and will give me their agent's number and whatever. I'm just going to do it all myself the same way I've gotten through life. And I'll just, I will get through this. And yeah, it was, but it was initially really awful. <laughs> Our king dirt bag. <laughs> uh, 
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.